Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics. We're here today with a very special guest who you may be familiar with from some of her recent books, uh, not not to mention having read about her in the newspaper. Uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali is our guest today, and we're here to talk about her latest book entitled Pray, not P-R-A-Y, but P-R-E-Y, subtitled Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. If you're not familiar with Ayan, she'll tell you a little bit of her, her her journey here in just a moment, but uh, she was raised in a very devout Muslim family in Somalia, uh, emigrated to the Netherlands, uh, and was a was a very well known and visible critic of the way uh, radical Islam was treating women, uh, not only in the Muslim world but in in the West. Uh, she was she collaborated on a film with Theo Van Gogh uh, in the in the early two thousands. Uh, was elected to the Dutch Parliament. Uh, emigrated after serving in the Dutch Parliament, emigrated to the United States uh, in the mid to late 2000s, has authored several books. The the one you may be familiar with, the most popular one, I think, is her book, Infidel, which describes her her journey uh, having been raised in a a radical Muslim home uh, and her journey out of that into life in the West. So I am really delighted to have you with us. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on. Let me ask just to start with, uh, what was it like for you as a as a as a, a girl, a young woman, growing up in your family and community in Somalia? Um, well, I would say very, very different from uh, you know any young girl growing up in the United States of America. Um, I was born in Somalia and. Um, as a young child, my family moved from Somalia to Saudi Arabia, from Saudi Arabia to Ethiopia, from Ethiopia to Kenya. And um, in all of those places, it was very clear that girls and women were seen as inferior beings, and that is in relationship to boys. And in a way that is very, very different from America and the rest of the West, uh, it was made very clear to me as a young girl that... uh, I had to uh, limit my intellectual, my cognitive, my physical abilities to working in the house, um, that is doing household chores, um, and be trained at that and become very good at it because later on I would become a wife and then in that sense I would only be doing the housework, submit to my husband. And so every girl was told that. I remember my father and my mother having a fight uh, amongst themselves where my father had sent my sister and me to school. And he, um, you know, about fourth grade, my mother decided that uh, it would bring shame to the family if we continued. There'd be the risk of bringing shame to the honor of the family if my sister and I kept on going to school. So my father was basically forcing her and saying, I want my daughters in school and I will be responsible for the consequences of that if they shame our family. And my mother asked him pointedly, what if they get pregnant out of wedlock? And my father looked at me in the eye and said, then I will shoot you. Wow. And yeah, I know. And these are conversations my father didn't have with my brother or my mother didn't have. No one was worried about 
my brother being male or a boy, or spending time outside playing with his friends, it was taken for granted that he would obviously go not only go to school and complete his, his education, uh, but be uh, someday uh, have a great occupation and you know save the family, all of that. So being female, being a girl was to be shrouded, to be covered from head to toe, to be your, your freedom of movement was constrained. You were kept inside the house and you had to have a reason to be out of the house. Uh, my relationships with friends, even other girls, even that was policed most of the time. And all of this was to preserve the honor of the family. You point out that sexual violence against women is not new. What is it that motivated you to write this book in particular at this moment? So sexual violence against women is not new, and it's also not limited to any geographic location, right? It's a joke. Mm. It is eternal, and um, it's universal. Uh, but the subject of my book, Prey, is the sudden spike in sexual violence against women in the public space. And this is, a, you know, it's directly correlated with um, the number of men, with men, and the number of men who are coming in from the Middle East, from Africa, and from South Asia. Most of these men come from Muslim-majority societies. Now, I make it very clear in the book that not all of these men uh, present bad behavior or sexual misconduct towards women, but a large number of them do. And of those who do... Uh, there is no remorse. There is no sense that what they're doing is wrong. And in fact, some of the European leaders have gone to speak to, you know, the leaders, uh, the religious leaders in the mosques and the Islamic centers. And these leaders have said, it's not the fault of the men. It's the fault of the women and the fact that in your societies wow. you sell alcohol. And so the conversation that I'm trying to start with this book is that in countries like Europe where, yes, there is still sexual misconduct in Europe against women, but it, the level of that misconduct, the numbers were brought down and are still going down for native European men. But now when you have these men coming from Muslim-majority societies uh, where the relationship between men and women is still in many ways medieval, you are going to have to, you will see problems like this and, and they're going to spike. And this is an unintended negative consequence of immigration, and especially immigration from Muslim-majority countries. Now, you're, you're suggesting in the book that since 2015, with the, the ma more, much more mass migration from Africa and the Middle East into Europe, that the sexual violence against women has, has fairly dramatically increased. Uh, is that is that the main idea in the book Prey that you are trying to get across to readers that there's a that there's a correlation between this significant increase in mass migration from Muslim majority countries into yeah. into Europe and that's been the cause of this increased sexual violence toward women. Well, I'm saying that right now what we can. What we can see is a correlation, not to be confused with causation, that I'm not confident yet in saying, using the word causation, 
because the numbers are still hidden. And when I was doing the research for this book, I would go to the agencies who are paid taxpayer money uh, to engage in data gathering, but they leave out so many data points. They leave out ethnicity, nationality, religion, uh, and in some cases, they even leave out the last names of the individual perpetrators of sexual violence. Uh, And so ironically, the agencies uh, whose job it is uh, to to gather this particular data are in some ways engaged in actually obscuring it because I think there is a fear that if uh, the numbers were to be made explicit, um, that maybe the populations of the relevant countries would become anti-immigrant. That's not Mm. what I think, but that's what the agencies fear. So you have sexual misconduct, which is, um, you know, as an issue itself, it is very, very difficult for women to report it to begin with. Um, And then there are few women who do the reporting, but even that is then shrouded in political correctness and um, the politics of immigration. And so it's very hard to, to, to see the clear numbers. So I rely on interviews with the victims, with journalists, with um, researchers. I've gathered a lot of anecdotal evidence as much as I could from uh, newspaper clippings and uh, broadcasting corporations. And these are all mainstream. I have tried as much as possible not to use anything fringe. And then on top of that, the data that's gathered. And the numbers I present in the book are from these sources. So that leads me to conclude, at least we have a very clear correlation. There might be a causation, but I'm not yet ready to to say that. But for us to get it, uh, you know, to have the facts on the table without any doubt, these agencies will have to shed their political correct hats and try and obtain this data as honestly and as openly as they can. So do you think the numbers actually might be understated because of that? Absolutely, yes. First of all, all data on sexual violence, the numbers are understated because of just the sheer number of women who don't report. And so given that, and then on top of this, this is now again shrouded with the politics of immigration and Islam and integration. So there is this extra motivation to hide the numbers. Mm. Uh, In fact, when I was in Germany and talking, and this isn't, by the way, only in Germany, it's the same in Sweden. Um, You know, some of the journalists would report on a case, on a sexual violence case, and they would report... Uh, not just uh, the first name and the age of the perpetrator, but sometimes the skin color and the nationality. And then that particular reporter would be scolded and told, no, you can't put this particular data in because that's going to cause racism. That's how bad things are. What has been the response of law enforcement and politicians to these kind of stories coming to the surface about sexual violence against women? The... Law enforcement officials I spoke to in every country are hugely frustrated 
They want to do their job. They're trained to do their jobs very well. These are very compassionate men and women. They don't want to hurt immigrants or anyone else, but they see these crimes. And often it's the politicians who tie their hands and tell them, um, well, you've done the detective work, but you're not allowed to prosecute. Or if you prosecute, you can't do this, you can't do that. And so I think it's very, very frustrating today in Europe to be a member of the law enforcement community um, because you either watch the crimes take place and do nothing and turn away, or you do something about it and then you risk being demoted, being called, labeled a racist or ethnocentrist or xenophobic or whatever. And for the politicians, I think in Europe, especially when it comes to the topic of immigration and Islam and the failure of Muslim immigrants to integrate, and to European society, I think the leadership is in a complete crisis. They have no idea what to do, or they are they they, they don't intend uh, to resolve this problem. So they leave a void, and that void is then filled by fringe groups, populists, uh, radical Islamists, Russian trolls, all of that. So the mainstream politicians have, in fact, uh, and I'll say most of them have uh, basically failed to do their jobs. Now, Ian, you point out one of the things I wasn't aware of, uh, that sexual violence that's perpetrated by groups of men is also something that you highlight as new. Uh, And I I was particularly struck by your your description of the event that's come to be known as the Silverstone Act. So tell us a little bit about that event. That event was um, New Year's Eve, December 31, 2015, January 1st, 2016. And in Cologne, people, you know, go out and celebrate and they drink. And I think the women, especially the women, uh, had no idea that this time it was going to be different. What they did know was about a game called the rape game. And this is very common in various North African countries, various Middle Eastern countries, And what happens is uh, you get a group of men, a large group of men, who form three concentric circles. An inner circle that um, they they pick a victim or a number of female victims, and they surround them, and they start attacking these women. And then there's the second circle, which is cheering the rapists on. And then there is a larger outer circle that is skipping outsiders from coming into that circle. And this is something that obviously the German women in Cologne had never experienced before. And uh, over 500 and what I think I have the number in the book um, were then reported that they were raped and robbed and groped and harassed and subjected to this particular horrifying game. And uh, unfortunately, only I think less than 50 of those cases made it to an investigation, and almost no one to a conviction. Wow. Gosh, that that's is hard. Just, that's hard to believe. Yeah. That's terrible. Thank, thank you for sharing that. Uh, give us a sense of what happens to some of these immigrant young men when they arrive in European cities and see these sexually liberated women there when they've had this background of the way you describe growing up, how women were dressed and treated. So when, first of all, 
I think we have to take the time to understand where these men come from. Mm. Some of these societies are still tribal. Um, they are religious and they've been influenced by radical Islam for many decades now. So there are men, young men now in their teens and 20s who were born into an Islamist society, not just a Muslim society, but an Islamist society. And then you have also societies that where order is completely broken down, places like Syria, Somalia, Afghanistan. So even the existing tribal order or religious order is just completely broken down. And that means that these young men are exposed to a great deal of violence, especially a great deal of violence against women. That's number one. Number two, even where there is some form of order and tradition, women are divided into good women versus bad women. And good women are those who are obedient and submissive and stay at home and are covered from head to toe. And everyone else is a bad woman who doesn't live by that code. So when these men come to Europe, when they come to the West and they see women dressed as they pleased, free, going about their business, they think of them as bad women. And on top of that, as one Egyptian friend told me, who is male, these men, when they think about European women, their only knowledge or acquaintance with European women or white women is through Hollywood movies, pornography, and so on. And so they come extremely prejudiced, thinking these women are prey, they are there for the taking, and their men do not protect them. And so that is why for them it seems sort of natural to play the rape game in their twos and threes and more. And they look at these women and they attack them. They have no empathy for them. And I was uh, talking to some of the perpetrators and witnessed some of these court cases. The women, the men, even after they are convicted or during the trial process, you know, everyone is looking for them to express some sign of remorse and there is none. There is no empathy. There is no remorse because the men who perpetrate these acts don't think that they've done something wrong. In fact, many of them feel that something wrong is being done to them by dragging them to court or sentencing them. So it, it's just a glaring culture, a, a glaring clash of cultures and values and a clash of civilizations. And let me be a, be a, try to be a little more specific about where these attitudes and values come from that are being imported into Europe with mass migration since 2015. What, what exactly is the role of radical Islam in this? A radical Islamic message is when it, uh, as it pertains to women, um, the radical Islamic message is there are good women and there are bad women, and good women are Muslim and they behave accordingly. The radical Islamist message is also one of conquest. And so what these radical Muslim imams say in the mosque and Islamic centers in other platforms that they have is, we can conquer Europe through immigration. The radical Islamist message is that the infidel that's the unbeliever, has either to be forced to come to Islam or eliminated. The radical Islamist message, as you can see unfolding before your very eyes now in this latest um, 
drama that's going on between the Palestinians and the Israelis is that there is no place for a Jewish state in the Middle East that Zionism is equal to genocide and that Jews and the state of Israel should be eliminated. These are the radical Islamist messages. They don't hide it. They advertise it. They preach it on all sorts of platforms, on social media, in mosques, in Islamic centers. And European, the European leadership know this, but they somehow stick their heads in the sand and think this is all just going to go away. So would it be fair, would it be fair to say that the values of the, some, of these, some of these Middle Eastern cultures where these immigrants are coming from is incompatible with the liberal democratic values of the West? Or is that an overstatement? I think it's an understatement. I think that if you have people who are Muslim but not Islamist, when they come into Europe or America, if you take them through a process of immersion in the values, the norms, the culture of democracy and liberalism and tolerance and equality, that's one thing. If you just say, well, you're welcome and you have access to all the services that the welfare state has to offer, which is free shelter, free education, free health care, free food, but you don't educate them, they end up going to the Islamist platforms, or rather the Islamist platforms come and recruit them and preach at them. And so I think it's an understatement to say that this, there is this clash of values. But right now, it's the Islamists who are working very, very hard through their channels of da'wah or proselytization to win the hearts and the minds of the immigrants, refugees, the asylum seekers, the European leadership is doing very, very little to win their hearts and minds. They're giving them free food and free health care, but they're not giving them or encouraging them to take any part of their values and their norms. I want to make sure I understand. You made a distinction between Islamists and between Muslims. Are you saying that most of the immigrants that come over would be Muslims but are picking up these more radical Islamist ideas once they come to Europe by people who are uh, recruiting them there? Or is it mixed of some bringing them and being recruiting them there? It is mixed. It's both. So there are Islamists coming in, uh, Islamist leaders who are actually coming in to preach and occupy and so on. That's a small number relatively. And then you have a somewhat larger number of people who've already been indoctrinated with the radical ideas of the Islamists. And then you have people who identify as Muslim, but who haven't yet adopted or have no clue what the Islamist political agenda is. And those ones get radicalized on European soil. Because in Europe, there is now a widespread infrastructure of radical Islamists, uh, the mosques that they set up, the Islamic centers that they set up, the charities that they set up, and the social uh, social media platforms that they set up. So it is, and I've seen it with my own eyes, people coming in from North Africa, from different parts of Africa. Like lo- Most of the Somalis I know that were radicalized in the Netherlands, they didn't get radicalized in Somalia or Kenya. They got radicalized in the Netherlands. They got radicalized in London. So th- 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 all of this is going on. And right now, the only agencies that are on the lookout for this sort of thing 
um, it's the surveillance agencies, uh, it's various forms of law enforcement. But in terms of education agencies, you know, the soft power stuff, there's very little of that going on. Ian, let me ha- just have you respond to s- you know, several different things that you bring up in the book uh, about how women are treated in uh, these Islamist cultures. So, for, for example, what's the modesty doctrine? And what happens to a woman who, is, who has been deemed immodest? So I, I coined the term modesty doctrine because growing up as a young Muslim woman and listening to the Islamists talk, they keep on harping on modesty, modesty, modesty. And this is how they describe it. A modest woman is a virgin. Um, she obeys or is under the guardianship of her father or her brother Um, or a direct male relative like an uncle if there is no father or brother to take up that responsibility. And she stays there until she's married. And once she's married, then her guardian is her husband to whom she is supposed to submit unquestioningly. That that woman is modest. uh, And she displays her modesty by covering herself from head to toe. And her body, every part of it is seen as an invitation uh, to have sex for men, including her face, her eyes, her hands, her hair, her heels. So all of that has to be covered. That's the modest woman. She's aware of that, and she stays out of the way of any man who's not a direct blood blood relative or her husband. Everyone else is the immodest woman. And if if you happen to be a widow or a divorcee, you still live by the rules of the modest woman. You stay at home and you cover yourself. All other women, the ones who are going to school, who are going to work, who dress as they please, um, who think of themselves as independent individuals in charge of their own destinies and in control of their circumstances, these women I regard as immodest. And I, therefore, I pray. I, let me ask you one final question here. There's been we've heard a lot of bad news here in the last few minutes talking to you. It's actually, you know, if you know, I think it's a little bit depressing to think about the way women are being treated uh, across Europe. But I guess what what I'd like to end with is what if anything gives you hope for protecting women's rights in the future in the West. The only signs of hope I've seen while I was working on this book were immigrant women, Muslim women who are rising up against this. And I hope that they're going to find common ground with working class women. Because to be honest with you, the women that uh, I have spoken to who have been harassed and groped and raped and who've been victims of this, Mm. uh, uh, you know, sexual violence brought in by these young men from Muslim-majority countries are almost all working-class women. And they live in working-class neighborhoods. And they are the ones who have nowhere to run, nowhere to turn. And so the immigrant women who are victimized, who've already been victims of these men for a long time, as their sisters and wives and daughters and nieces, if they work together with 
the working class women, I think they can form a new kind of feminism that addresses these issues. But right now, I feel slightly like you, depressed, because the existing feminist networks uh, pay almost no attention to this issue. Um, and I, I think there is, there is now an opportunity to build something new and something interesting. Well, we, we look forward to seeing what, what that something new will be uh, because it's, it sounds like it definitely needs to be an improvement about, on, with what's going on at present. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for being with us. I want to commend to our listeners your book uh, entitled Pray, P-R-E-Y, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights by Ayan Hirsi Ali, uh, and some of your previous books as well, Infidel, Nomad, uh, and several others that are you know, that are just terrific works. And I think it's significant that even though we may have a difference in terms of religious background, with Sean and I being Christian uh, and our podcast entitled Think Biblically as a specifically Christian audience that we're addressing, uh, we, we still we have a lot of common ground in our care for the dignity and respect for women around the world. Uh, for us as Christians, that's rooted in our, in our notion that all human beings, men and women both, are created in the image of God and have, in, have inestimable intrinsic value. Uh, and so we have we we have a, we have a lot of a lot of common ground uh, with what we're trying to do together to protect the rights of women around the world. So this has been just a, a, an incredibly enlightening conversation. I and we wish you all the best in your work with your foundation, the AHA I and Hirsi Ali Foundation, uh, that's working on behalf of protecting the rights of women around the world. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the work you do. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Tablet School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Masters in Christian Apologetics, now offered fully online. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you've enjoyed today's conversation with Ian Hirsi Ali, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.